Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Curveball. I'm your host, Curveball, and today I am joined by George Siegel. He is a former weather and TV broadcaster. Now he does movies. He is a movie director. So we're going to talk about his movie, The Last House Standing, and anything else that he would like to talk about today. George, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Uh, It's an honor. Why don't you start off by just giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself, maybe where you're from or anything else that you want the audience to know about you before we get started? Sure. I grew up uh, like half on the East Coast, half on the West Coast, but junior high and high school in uh, California, went to UCLA. And then when I um, graduated from college, just sent out tapes trying to get a job at a TV station to be a broadcaster. And I got hired in Bakersfield, California as my first job. And from there, just ended up moving all over the country. Did that for 14 or 15 years. Started my own video production company. And the last few years, last four or five years, have been making documentary films. And uh, that's a whole new challenge in itself to try to raise money to make a picture, have a good thing, a subject matter to uh, that people you hope find interesting, and then to actually make the whole thing come together. So that's what I do now. So let's talk about your broadcasting career, because um, did you go to like college or or what did you major in in college or did you do it as a trade? Because I know they have schools such as in Huntington Beach where you can go for a few months. It's like a broadcast boot camp. Sure. No, I went to UCLA and was a political science major because I had actually hoped to go to law school. And, uh, you know, the great thing about a big school is there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a lot of distraction. So I will probably never develop the study habits to have made that possible. Like the world needs more lawyers anyway. But um, I said, you know, broadcasting was something I always wanted to do. My dad had been in the business and um, so I guess you could say it was in my blood. So I thought it was something I could achieve success at and uh, started knocking on doors and making it happen. But I didn't have formal training. I mean, I took some classes at school, but um, that might have actually helped me for TV news because it made my my background look more well-rounded than somebody who just maybe had one uh, area that they specialized in school. But since that time, I've had a, a, one of my sons has graduated from film school at USC, and, and they learn a lot of stuff. So I, I kind of missed out probably by not learning some of the things that he was able to learn while he was in college. Absolutely. So talk about your experience in broadcasting. What kind of broadcasting did you do? And just kind of give us an overview about working in the broadcasting industry. Well, you know, when I was in it, this was back in the back in the 80s when news TV news was actually news and not so much opinion. And um, you could watch the news and know that you were actually going to get an unbiased story, not somebody's idea of what you needed to see. And so it was a lot of fun. It was a, I started off, I was the, the weekday weather forecaster. I was the nightside reporter and the weekend sports anchor. 
and I had to do wear all those hats, but it was great experience to get to do uh, so many different things. And then each place I moved, as you get into bigger markets, you kind of get put into a category where you don't get to do as many things as you did in a smaller market. Um, but it was just, you know, just lived in places like Fresno, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Detroit, San Antonio. Um, and it was a, it was a great experience. I got to work with a lot of really talented people that I've seen go on to, um, successful careers on the national level. And, uh, it, it was great. I, it was a really good experience to, to do that, but I was not disappointed to leave that business, especially I'm glad I'm not in it now with the way, um, news has become so opinionated and less news. Yeah. What's the biggest person that, that we might know that, that you've uh, worked with in the past that you can think of? Gosh, a couple of reporters that were just amazing that went on to work for Dateline, Ann Thompson and John Larson. Um, there was an anchor that I worked with in Detroit, Devin Skillion, who's done some national things. Um, some of the weather guys that I ended up backing up in markets were on G GMA and they, uh, those guys were really, really talented. Um, and uh, so, you know, th th there are people that if, you, if you're a news junkie, you would know who some of these people are. Um, if you're not, you know, it's just, it was just great being around so many talented people and seeing the, the kind of work that they did. Absolutely. What advice would you give somebody now who is trying to break into the broadcasting industry or wants to do radio or TV or, or some of the things that you've done? Develop a thick skin. Uh, be prepared to work a lot of hours for not that much money initially, but have a great, try to have a great attitude about it. Um, learn as much as you can. And, and the, the toughest part is the rejection that you get, because, you know, when you send a resume out for a sales job or a marketing job or whatever, they're looking at a piece of paper. When you send a resume out for a TV job, they're looking at your face and they're looking at you, how you look on camera. And they're brutal about that. And there's so many elements you have to compete against just to get in the door for jobs. So you, you have to have a thick skin. I'm not saying you can't achieve it. And it certainly can be a great career if you can. And then the other thing would be to remember what journalism should be. It shouldn't be for you to go on there and tell people what you think. It should be to cover a story and to give people, a, let people make their own minds up uh, about what they're seeing. But it's, you know, it's a competitive business. But the, if you can handle the rejection, and that's the toughest part, because I have hundreds of rejections that I've gotten that are that I, it, in the beginning, you take it very personal and it's frustrating, but you have to get beyond that. Let's play a quick clip from the film and then we'll come back and talk about it. I think that's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. In other words, where is the vulnerability so high that we should not be developing? Because when we develop in risky areas, it's not just that person there that is taking on that responsibility. It's the community that takes on the responsibility. So it's a liability for many more people, for society. We have to recognize that, you know, the United States sits on a, a portion of the globe that has the most dynamic weather patterns of anywhere else in the world. And, you know, there's a risk living in this great country, and we have to figure out how to adapt and become resilient based on what Mother Nature throws at us. I'm a scientist and this discussion on climate change has become almost religious. Um, from my point of view, when you look at the data, 
We have a direct impact on climate. You can argue about how much that impact is, uh, but yes, our climate is getting more erratic. Climate change basically says as you increase CO2, you change your, your heating and cooling of the world, and we're seeing changes. Do I think that climate change is occurring? Absolutely. Scientifically, it is absolutely happening. It is not a religion. Now let's switch over and talk about your film. Tell the listeners about your film, why you wanted to create the film, and, and just kind of uh, tell us about it. Well, this is kind of an offshoot of everything that I had done previously in my career, because as a weatherman and a reporter, some of the time we'd go out and cover stories where people were victims of disasters. Either their house burned down, it washed away, was destroyed by a hurricane or a tornado. And as I was getting out of the broadcasting business, I, I partnered with a guy in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Uh, the guy's name is Wes Vollmer, and he um, was in the concrete business. And he started telling me about why concrete is the thing to build with, because it won't burn down, blow down, wash away, and everybody should be doing it. And at first, I thought the guy was a little crazy and just over, over passionate about this. And then I came around going, you know, there's something to this. That, there's, that's actually true. And so I came up with this idea to have a house that that's your goal should be to be the last house standing. And if you ever saw the movie Talladega Nights, did you ever see that with Will Ferrell? Uh, I really don't watch uh, much uh, movies, but I do watch documentaries like yours. That's okay, this wasn't it. a documentary. This was just a comedy. And this guy in the movie, he had this line where his dad used to tell him, if you're not first, you're last. That's how that's the kind of the running joke throughout the film. And it made me think, well, what are things that are good to be last at? Well, I want my house to be the last house standing. And that was the premise for the film. The film is called The Last House Standing. And it's about how everyone needs a home that doesn't blow away, wash away or burn down. And that there are things that most people can do that you can do something to make your home safer. But we all buy houses or move places and you're attracted to the, the icing on the cake and you don't really know the ingredients. And it, every year we see all these tragic stories of people that literally lose everything. And so my hope is our film will be seen by people and create a conversation to know that we need to start doing things better. We can't keep doing things the same way, especially with storms becoming more frequent, you know, I don't, I don't know how you feel about global warming and climate change, but our experts in the film feel very strongly about it. And that makes it even more important to understand where you live, what you live in, and how to keep it safe. So if a disaster does strike, you aren't one of those people that has, that has lost everything. Well, I know one thing, my mom was uh, in a hurricane this year, two hurricanes, and uh, so she lost some things. So. What, what is it like making a documentary um, about people that have lost everything? I mean, I'm sure it has to tug at your heartstrings. How, how do you keep it together and, and get everything done that you need to do to make the film? Well, the first thing you, you keep in perspective is you're going there and you're fortunate to be able to leave when it's over. But they're not. And that's the hard part is you're, you, you roll into somebody else's disaster and you're there and you give it coverage and you talk to them. Maybe it gives them hope that, that things will be better quickly. But once you leave and once the next disaster happens, those people kind of get just pushed by the side of the road. You know, they get, they're no longer, the, the spotlight's not on them anymore. 
And so it's tough because you're kind of hope for them while you're there. It's like, hey, the, the media's here, this documentary will come out, maybe it'll make a difference. But it's a long process to make a documentary. It can be a couple a couple of years from when you were there visiting till your film actually makes it. And you have to think that every day those people are living with that disaster. You know, we were in Panama City, Florida, and Mexico Beach. Mexico Beach, it's going to be years before that place is if it's ever rebuilt to to what it was. Panama City still has houses with tarps on it. They have people that, you know, not only faced the disaster that destroyed their home, then they had the the lowlifes that came in afterwards that ripped them off and took advantage of them, but didn't fix their problems. So it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, I I did a film before this uh, where we had to talk to um, a lot of kids that had tried to commit suicide at some point in their life. And it's that feeling of when you're looking at somebody and how broken they are and how sad their life was that they were willing to, to take that step. And it kind of carries over when you see people that have lost everything, you know, even if you, if they're, if they had money, imagine the things that you can never replace. Money's not going to rebuy things passed down through generations of your family. It's not going to bring back your high school yearbook or your letterman's jacket or any of the things that you treasured from when you were younger. And so it's tough, but it's, how it is on us is nothing compared to how it is on the the folks that have to live with it every day. So, you know, we just hope we can make a difference. Absolutely. This next question is kind of like a two in one. First, what was the most important thing you learned when making the film? And second part is what was the worst natural disaster that you've ever covered during your film or during your radio or during your TV and weather broadcasting time? Um, the the worst, well, I answer the the first part um, in in terms of what we found when we were there. I mean, what what exactly, you know? Because I can t- I, I, the thing that jumps out at me, and that's what distracted me from the first part of the question was when I was uh, doing the weather in in San Antonio, Texas. I had to fly up to Moore, Oklahoma, after they had an F five uh, tornado hit them, and I interviewed a woman who was on the slab of her uh, property, all that was left was the concrete, a bathtub and a mattress. And there was nothing else there, nothing. And the only reason she was there is she got into the bathtub and held that mattress over her. And when the storm blew by, that was it. You know, and and when you see the look in, in somebody's eyes when they're, telling you they're reliving that story it's it's just unbelievable um and so that that is absolutely stunning to be a part of and that's the one that stands out the most the other is when we went to mexico beach um in 2018 and you just drive around and it looks like they they, there was only one house standing that's the house that's in the film we call it the last house standing everything else is gone and it's just, it, you can't imagine how bad it is until you're there and you see it in person. Because the media, TV doesn't, and this isn't the media's fault, this is just television. You know, you see a two or three minute story and they show you it's bad. And then they usually show you the beach, right, where the coast is, where the water came in and wiped people out or wiped out houses. But all the people that worked in that town probably live a couple miles inland in, in other houses that get destroyed that you don't ever see on the news. 
and their lives are ruined. Um, so it's kind of a chain reaction of the whole thing that just um, is, is, is pretty hard to see and, and be part of. But as I said before, it's even more difficult to know the people that live it. A friend of mine um, lived in Tennessee and one of the tornadoes this year destroyed his house and it just turned him upside down. I mean, it just completely unsettles you because you have to try to save whatever you can. Then you have to find another place to live. Then you have to deal with the insurance company and the claims adjusters. And there are so many things that can potentially go wrong. So as far as, you know, the biggest takeaway in the whole thing is really have a solid understanding of where you live. What are the risks where you live? And what can you do to be prepared for it? And don't move in someplace and go, oh, I'll get around to it. Because you, nobody makes their disaster plan when the disaster is hitting. You can't think straight under those circumstances. You're, you know, somebody tells you, hey, you've got two minutes to run into your house and grab whatever you can. You probably would just freeze up on the, on the doorstep. And that's the kind of things people face on these decisions. So the idea is to be prepared, have a plan. Have a go box if you live in a fire zone. So if you had to go in and grab stuff, you have a list of things you know you have to take. Um, in a hurricane area, if you're in a flood zone, you got to make sure you have the right insurance. Because if you're relying on FEMA to get your life whole again, that's not what they're there for. But people don't know that. Um, and they think their insurance will cover it. Well, there's pretty specific clauses. I live in Florida. There's stuff in my insurance that says you need to have specific coverage for hurricanes. And you need to have specific coverage for flooding from hurricanes. If you don't, you're not getting anything. So you have to understand that. Yeah, that's what a lot of people don't understand who don't who don't have renters insurance and stuff happens. They don't seem to understand that the property insurance by the landlord just covers the property. It's not going to cover your personal belongings. That last house exactly. that was standing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was I was agreeing with you. Absolutely. The last house that was standing in, in Mexico Beach, was it built with the concrete or, or how was it constructed? Yes, they had beams going 40 feet into the sand. Um, most of the house was concrete block. The, where, where there were areas where there was a vulnerability to the house, the hurricane found that. So there was a place in the ceiling upstairs where they had a plug socket so they could plug in things out on the deck. And because of the plug socket being on the ceiling, the wind got under it and ripped that part of the ceiling off. Everything else was pretty sturdy in that house and it, and it survived. Um, and it's interesting. Some people say, well, I don't want to have to live in a bunker like that. I don't want to have to live in a fortress. I don't want to be the last house standing if all my neighbors are gone. I couldn't disagree with that more. I want to be there. I want to be the one that's not having to find my stuff and get start over. These people may be lonely for a while, but they still are a lot better off than all their neighbors that lost everything. Are houses that, that are constructed like that with concrete, are, are they more cheaper or more expensive than the, the regular wood houses that are built? They can be more expensive. This is, there's a formula that, you know, it could be anywhere from 10 to, to 15%, 20% more. It depends on how extensive you get. But the, the takeaway for me is, and let's use a, a $100,000 house, for example, we, we interviewed Habitat for Humanity, and they build houses that are in that seventy-five dollars to $100,000 range. And they're, they're not, they're going to start doing concrete houses. I've talked to some people there that 
they're going to build some houses out of concrete, but they use wood, but it's the way they attach the roof to the, the walls and the way the walls are anchored to the floor and the extra plywood that they put in the roof. And in uh, Panama City, which sustained incredible amounts of damage, the Habitat for Humanity houses did not. They were fine. And so there are things that you can do, but it, sure, if you could build a concrete block house, but I'll tell you something, what, what I find insane. You know, I live in Tampa, Florida, which is a bullseye for a hurricane. I mean, this place, we had the tropical storm in November and we saw houses that were flooded and people had to move out from a tropical storm. Imagine if a category five hurricane hit this place. We show in the film how the, the place would be absolutely com completely destroyed. It would be it would be horrible. And so what kind of house would survive that? Well, a lot of people here build concrete on the first floor and they're doing wood on the second floor. There's no way that that is as, as safe as a house can be. Um, the wind code here, I think, is built to withstand 140 miles an hour. But those aren't the storms that, you, that destroy everything. It's the Category 5 and 4 hurricanes. Um, so South Florida has the toughest standard in the country. And you'll notice when there's a hurricane, they've had the least damage the last few years because they, they built with that in mind. And so even if you had to pay a little more, if you factor that into a mortgage, I'll give you the best example. And this is something to me that shows how poorly people are prepared. More Oklahoma has been hit by eight tornadoes since 1999, eight. It took them until 2014 to change the building code and build things that were stronger so they could survive tornadoes. Now, if you had eight tornadoes, wouldn't the number one thing you would want is a storm cellar that you could get in if a tornado was coming? And people go, I can't afford it. I understand money can be tight. Storm cellar might cost $3,000 to $4,000. Now put that in a 30-year mortgage. Why would you choose a granite countertop over a storm cellar that could save your life? But most people in Oklahoma do not have a storm cellar. They probably have granite countertops. So people are just saying, it's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to worry about it. If it does, we'll be fine. But that's not the case. That's not the reality when the disaster hits. No, when I did have a house, I had said I wasn't going to purchase one without a basement because I live in Kansas and, you know, we have a lot of tornadoes here, a lot of close calls mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I said I wasn't going to purchase a house without a basement. What? Yeah. What? And, and you know what? If you're talking to somebody who is struggling or they're stretching to get into a home, I see the argument about, well, we just don't want to spend the money. But then you have to go look at what happens at people who don't. And the reality of Kansas, Oklahoma, um, parts of Colorado into Arkansas, I mean, those places get tornadoes, North Texas. So that should be just standard procedure. If you're going to have a house there, you're kind of rolling the dice anyway. You're choosing your quality of life. But why not get the storm cellar instead of going out and, you know, taking that trip to the Bahamas that year, invest in your life, put a storm cellar in. And the people that I know that I interviewed in Oklahoma that had them are darn glad they did. And the ones that didn't are lucky to be alive. Absolutely. Speaking of that, what, what do you feel um, natural disaster victims have in common with each other? Um, the, the sense of loss, 
the sense of um, of what it means to lose everything and and the problems and headaches they have to go through just to get food on the table, to get gas in their car. If their job got wiped out by the storm, they now long no longer have an, a method of employment. So they take a beating all around that. And then the people that are in that neighborhood that maybe got off a little better have survivor's guilt. It's like they're seeing their neighbor whose house was blown away. I mean, how much can you do for them? But I, I've, we interviewed people and met people that just felt guilty because they didn't have problems. So I think mentally, it's got to just be a huge deal for whichever side you're on. Obviously, it's got to be worse for the person who, who lost everything. But I think they have that sense of, of frustration, of, of isolation, of doubt. I mean, there's got to be so many feelings that we met people with of just feeling like the spotlight leaves you and then nobody cares about you, that you're on your own. Yeah, that's what I hear a lot of people say. Also, when people move into their homes, they they don't seem to understand what's around them. Like you talked about knowing the risks in the area you, you live in. Why do you feel like people have so little information on their home or why are they so oblivious to what's going on around them when they move into a home? I think people by nature are are lazy about that aspect. You know, it's interesting that FEMA director told us, if it rains where you live, your house can flood. Think about that. Yet most people, when I was living in uh, San Antonio, uh, we had uh, a tropical storm, hurricane tropical storm, that people that lived three or four miles from a river who had never had water in their yard had their houses flooded. Now, maybe it would have been a good idea when you moved there to, to study what the possibilities were with that river and what it could do to you. But I think wherever you live, and, and hopefully someday apps like Zillow or uh, those realtor.com will have information on there about safety for the community. Right now, you have to dig for it. You could go to the FEMA website, FEMA.gov, and find out what the flood risk is in your area, what the fire risk is. But you need to understand what the possible downsides are of where you live. You know, another thing down the road from where I live, they're building an entire apartment complex out of wood. And the building is on the water. Now, if people are going to move in there and they don't have renter's insurance and they don't have an evacuation plan, they're, they're insane. Because there's no way a wood apartment building by the water is a safe place to live. But they'll fill it and people will move in and they'll go, that's not going to happen to me. I'm fine. And if it does, we'll, 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 be, we'll deal with it. That's the price of living in paradise. And I think that's crazy. I think you have, to, you have to understand your risks and take some action. There's, sometimes there's nothing you can do. So the bottom line is you want to have insurance, right? You know, if you have to start over, the guy with insurance is going to be, remember Hurricane Harvey in uh, Houston? Um, all those pe poor people that lost so much because the, they had no idea that their house could flood, they could have bought an insurance policy because they weren't, were not in the flood zone for three or 400 bucks. And that's the difference between losing everything or being able to rebuild your life. So let's say that a person couldn't have a concrete home or some of the things that we talked about here. What's some other things that people can do to try to make sure their home is safe as, as safe as possible. I know I heard you on another show talking about things like hurricane blankets. So talk about 
some things like that that maybe people don't know about because I didn't even know those existed. I know people will board up their homes and stuff, but just kind of give us some other tips uh, from your experience. Well, the first thing you should find out is if there is an expert you could get to come inspect your home and point out potential vulnerabilities. So for example, they go up in the attic and they know they check and see if there are brackets attaching the, the roof to the side of the house. There are hurricane brackets you can put in there. You can put this closed cell foam in your attic that makes the envelope of the house tighter. So if, if water does get in, it doesn't get through that. And it can also make the roof more solid. You can get hurricane windows and replace older windows in your house. Um, you can, that hurricane blanket is, is really interesting because it can withstand winds of over 175 miles an hour. And a lot of people have double doors that open into their house. You know, when we, when we first moved here, we met some people we've, we've become friends with, and they had a house where the door opened out. And my wife and I used to joke about who would build a house like that? That is so unwelcoming. It's just, that's ridiculous that a door opens out like that. Well, then when I was making this film, I found out if those guys were the three little pigs, they're the ones living in the brick house. <laughs> you want your door to open out because the wind's not going to blow it in. And I called them and apologized for making fun of them for a few years because I said, wow, I wish my house had that. So it's checking all your vulnerabilities and trying to make it as safe as possible. Because just throwing a few sandbags in front of your door just slows down the inevitability of what's going to happen to you. Maybe that's not where you live if you know that that area is prone to flooding. Maybe you make a different choice that's safer for you and your family. If you want to live out in the woods and it's an overbuilt area in a heavily wooded area and there's only one or two roads out like there was in Paradise, California, maybe that's not Paradise. Maybe that's not where you should be because if disaster strikes and in California, there's fires all the time now. Um, the FEMA director told us that Paradise, California is the worst disaster he's ever seen because of how things just everything burned down. And we went to Malibu for the film and, and saw not as it's not as bad as Paradise, but it's, it was pretty bad. Seven or eight hundred houses that burned down there. Um, so it, it just. The amount of things that can that can go wrong, it's just staggering. And you want to be able to take those into account. I, I know we sound like such doom and gloom. I'm, I probably sound like such a doom and gloom guy, but it's not. It's just understanding what your risks are and doing something to prepare for it. And I hope we did that here. I mean, you know, maybe some year you'll see me sitting by the side of the road going, that didn't work. But at the end of the day, I'll have insurance and I'll know that I made my family as safe as possible. And I think people have to take that seriously. You know, you have to... If there's, there are things you can fix, everybody can do something. It, you can't always guarantee that you're going to save your house. If you live in an area like you live in Kansas, if an EF5 tornado rolls over your house, there's nothing that's going to stop that if it hits you directly. But and then hopefully you're in that storm cellar that you put in and you had insurance to cover the things that, that did get lost. So I believe even when you're in a tough situation, there's something extra that you can do somehow to make your situation more safe. Yeah, because some apartment complexes, they will uh, tell you that you need to get your 
insurance, your renter's insurance, but they will also offer something like a limited liability, but it doesn't cover anything. And so people might, you know, get that cheaper instead of getting the renter's insurance and then they end up losing everything. Yep. Or you have things that you go, now nah, I don't want to insure it. One of the gentlemen, a 91 year old gentleman we interviewed in our film um, had an old Mercedes that wasn't running very well. So he knew he wasn't going to be driving it. So they took the insurance off of it, burned down to nothing. And then the fire melted completely. He had like a, uh, an old MG convertible that also got melted down to nothing. Gold coins that he had collected over the years that turned to liquid in the fire. Um, you just never know what's going to happen. And, uh, you have to, especially even you, you make a great point about renting. People think oh, I'm just renting. I don't have that much stuff. Well, then it's not going to cost you that much to insure it. You know, it's based on how much you have. So if you have $10,000 worth of valuables, why not protect yourself that you're going to be that much more ahead of the game if you have to relocate after a disaster and, and start over. And then you also want to take pictures of everything because a lot of people will say, yeah, I lost my big screen TV and my espresso machine. And the insurance company is going to go, do you have receipts? Got any pictures of these uh, items that you say you had? Uh, no, I never got around to that. Well, they're never going to get around to paying you. That's another thing I was going to ask you, what, what, what people should do. And you, you just summed it up right there, take pictures. What, what is the biggest challenge that you had that you were facing when you did this film? probably raising the money. Um, you know, the industry that I thought would be most interested in funding it is the toughest industry to get money out of to do it. And that would be the concrete industry. You know, I've been working on projects since 2005, where we've gone to them to try to raise money for shows or for different things. And they don't want to spend it. They have other avenues that they use for their advertising. So when you go to raise the money for a film, you know, that's the toughest part of making documentaries. You know, if you're a famous celebrity or an Obama, you can just say you want to do something and people will, people will back your project. You know, it's like, look at the Netflix deal that, that they got. Look at the Netflix deals that um, celebrities get, you know, that they say they do a GoFundMe page or a, a Kickstarter. And those guys raise a million dollars. It's very hard to do that if you don't have the, the name behind you. So that's the toughest part. That's why there's a lot of struggling documentary filmmakers. I'm in this group with these folks who you watch their films and you go, wow, these are really talented people. So what separates the film that makes it versus the one that doesn't? I think a lot of times it's being able to market it and the money. That's the toughest part to me. Absolutely. You talk about in Moore, Oklahoma, how it took so long for them to change their building codes. Why do you feel that building codes are so weak around the country? Because builders, I believe, and this is what experts tell me, that they lobby for lower standards. You know, if you, if you tell a builder, you have to build to this A plus A1 standard, they're going to think they're going to lose money because nobody's going to want to pay it. So it was like back in the beginning when, when airbags and uh, seatbelts and those elements went in the car, it became a law. You had to have them, right? It wasn't, you don't have a choice when you go in to buy a car. 
They don't say, hey, George, you can get this car for $5,000 less, but it won't have airbags or seatbelts. And I think that would be ideal if that's what happened with homeowners and builders. If builders said, if builders were told, look, you have to build to this wind code, you have to build to this fire code or earthquake code. But you know how difficult that is? They spend probably hundreds of millions, maybe billions, I don't know what they spend a year lobbying to not have the standards raised. And anytime I've ever been in a situation where I've had a, where I've built a house, I can go back afterwards and find every place that they cut corners to save a buck. So what does it have to take to change things in more Oklahoma? I think they finally got tired as a community of saying, we can't keep doing this. We can't keep rebuilding this. So now they, you know, they changed the wind rating. Um, they made change, raised the standard of how garage doors have to be put in. So they're more secure. And when they've had a few tornadoes recently, sure, right in the path of a tornado, that generally is going to be tough to, to, to win that battle. But as you fan out from the center of a tornado, the winds aren't anywhere as strong as they are right in the center. So if those houses are built better, it cuts down the amount of damage that a neighborhood will have when that storm hits. And so they changed the code and the, it's been fantastic for them. I think they did the same thing in Alabama this year in, in parts of Alabama. And they saw the results of that. Um, I think it was from a few years ago that they put it in effect, but they had less damage from the tornado, from the hurricanes that hit this year because of that. And the neighborhoods that are forward thinking and have a plan tend to come out a lot better than the ones that don't. And a lot of times it takes a disaster to wake you up. You just hope people aren't killed and, and have to suffer so much to have that happen. But look at every year on the Mississippi River. You've probably seen those stories on the news. The people that get flooded and their, home, they, their homes washed away and they go, we're going to rebuild. We love it here. Why? I, I think you have to. And who's responsible for paying for that? You know, if you if you've shown that it doesn't work, it's kind of crazy to put a house back there. Well, I'm originally from Louisiana, and a lot of people say that about us uh, living on the Gulf Coast. Why do yeah, we choose there's a price to, to pay for it? You've seen you've seen that. You've probably lived that, and you know, first of all, what a fantastic place it may be to live, but. The downside is what happens. What did Louisiana get hit with this year? Four hurricanes, four or five? I know South, Southwest Louisiana got hit with two because my family was in the path of uh, that uh, storm. The Iowa went right over their town and um, they had two, at least in Southwest Louisiana that I know of. Yeah, I think they had four total and it's just, it's unbelievable. And, and so if you suffer loss from it, I mean, look at all the damage that occurred and how long it took to just rebuild from Katrina, which was, which was years ago. And the, the, the cost of these storms and what it costs, people having to relocate their lives, having to be completely uh, up, uprooted from where they are, um, you have to weigh the risk versus the reward. You may live in paradise or you may live in a place that your family's been in for generations and you, your job is there and you can't go anywhere. But you, then you have to take steps to make sure that if something does happen, that you can handle it. Absolutely. Are there any upcoming projects that your company is working on? Any books, any other movies, any, any, anything that you're working on or that, that the listeners can check out? 
Not yet, but they can check out The Last House Standing. Um, we are going to, the film is going to hopefully air on uh, public television stations around the country. It's being made available to them in 2021. And so if they go to our website, uh, thelasthousestanding.org, you can sign up for our newsletter and then we're going to post on there. It's going to run in Alabama this week. It's going to run in, you know, and let people know when they can see it. And they can also go on our website, uh, thelasthousestanding.org forward slash movie, and they can watch the movie right now and see it. And, um, you know, I think it'll be something that I, I hope they take a, take notes and, and take advantage of and do something to, to change the course of, of what could happen to them in the future. Because if we don't, as the home buyers or the renters, if we don't start demanding more, what, what are we waiting for? What's going to change? It's not. So I think if everybody just said, look, we're, we want a higher standard. We want, we deserve better. This is, this is our castle. This is where our family lives. And, you know, that's what one of the gentlemen in our film says, people deserve better, but you're not going to get it if you don't demand it. And that's what our film hopefully will show people. And then beyond that, the other projects are just in a little further down in the pipeline. And, um, it's really a little too early to talk about them yet, but we're always working on stuff. So what are the chances you think you can get it aired on the Weather Channel? Because the Weather Channel airs similar things that you, you are doing. So what's the chance you think you can get it on there? You know, I've emailed the, the program director there probably 20 times, and I've never heard back from them. That goes back to my broadcasting career where you just throw tapes out there and you hope that somebody will see it and, and give you an entree. It's perfect for the Weather Channel, but you know, it, it, it's also the frustration of you can make it out, you can put it out there and hope that somebody will answer an email or a phone call, but it's very difficult to do, you know, unless I, unless I see Jim Cantori walking around my neighborhood and I can go up to him because he's here covering a hurricane. No, nobody returns my call. I'm just another guy trying to sell them something and I've never had, I have to this point not had success getting to them. But I think it's perfect for that station. And I, I love the channel. I watch it all the time. Absolutely. So you guys can go to the lasthousestanding.org slash movie to check out the film. Are there any other topics that we didn't touch on today that you would like to touch on before we go? Uh, no. I, you know, I think I, I thank you so much for the time you've given me to talk about this. And, you know, you had some great questions. I, ho I hope your family's okay in uh, Louisiana. Yeah, um, they're doing good and, you know, getting getting everything rebuilt and they're just um, rolling right along. And I'm sure they're kind of hurricane weary after this year and glad that the season will be I over. know. Let's hope for a weak season next year. I think they said that it's a, they were predicting a La Nina. And in some instances, that's, a I, I guess, a, a maybe a, a less strong hurricane season. To me, it's all confusing now because this wasn't supposed to be as bad a year in the beginning. And then look at what it turned out to be. So, and, and then I've also heard a lot of these experts tell us, even if there's only one hurricane that season, but it hits you, it was a bad hurricane season. So, you know, it would be great to have none of them, but it doesn't appear to be, I mean, every year it seems to be getting worse. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, George Siegel, George, Thank you so much for joining me Thank today. You. And listeners, be sure to rate and review the show. 
For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.